Welcome back. I think what I'm going to do for 50 minutes uh, is recap some ideas from the last session and then uh, deal primarily with the first part of the second part of the book, which is on the definition of law, which I think is extremely important uh, because one of the avenues into a philosophical understanding of natural law is whether it can be verified uh, in terms of those essential predicates of law. And so I wanna spend time with those four essential predicates of law. Um, and then just when we get to the question, which is in part two of the second part of uh, what can be verified? I mean, is natural law real law? What in the world is it? Uh, that's when I wanna stop and let uh, the group function and more dialectically in questions. As I was just saying, this is a, a, a strange uh, winter term, 1958. Uh, what is it? 10 weeks, University of Chicago style. And he spends half of the time basically on methodology. Uh, actually, he spends more than half of the time on methodology. Virtually the whole book is on situating ourselves to philosophically investigate natural law. But especially the first part is, is methodological. Um, his mentor, Jacques Maritain had, and who was on one of the uh, commissions for drawing up the list of human rights in the late 1940s, uh, famously said that, well, we can't get a consensus, philosophical consensus about these rights. In other words, we can't really explain the foundations and the coherence of it all. We're dealing here primarily with a, he called it a practical creed or an ideology. That is, we know it must be right, but we're not prepared to say how. And so Simone picked that phrase of Mary Tan up and ran with it in, in the first part of this book. Uh, and we want to think about ideology along with Simone, perhaps the most benign form of ideology, not the most wicked and nefarious kinds of ideology, but benign ones that everyone uses and falls prey to, sometimes unreflectively. Uh, let's say Simone means by ideology, a placeholder. That is, we can't agree on the uh, dialectical starting point or conclusion, proper philosophical starting point or conclusion. So we're going, to, we're going to affirm something else. And we have to put a placeholder in there to take the place of what would ordinarily be a complicated and often frustrating philosophical inquiry. Right? Uh, and placeholders um, invoke some kind of assent while leaving the depth 
of the issue and even the complication of meetings to one side. There's all kinds of placeholders we use. Uh, one of the placeholders that I always pay attention to because I do kind of social theory is whenever I see someone use the word society, I know they're using a placeholder right away. Right? Like which society are you talking about? Uh, and there's all kinds of placeholders and they, they do evoke a kind of assent to something. And if you have your use of placeholders under control, you are always reminded to come back and take away the placeholder and think it through. When you don't have control over placeholders, the placeholders become uh, the thing itself and they become cliches, right? They can, they can work to exhort people to act, but they don't explain anything. Okay. So uh, one of the problems is, is that intersubjectivity, which is the, the baseline of any kind of social interaction across different kinds of societies, is intersubjectivity. Without intersubjectivity, uh, there would be no society. And it, we can find it in everything from people at the opera together or at the baseball park. We can find it in the piazza. We can also find it in the most in, intimate social relations. Intersubjectivity is everywhere. But for intersubjectivity to have any useful function, uh, we have to depend on truth, uh, either de facto or de jure. I mean, by de jure, truth would be truth that's demonstrated or at least adequately explained, right? And so when we're uncomfortable with doing that, that is addressing the truth that we're depending on in our intersubjectivity, that gets bridged by the placeholder or the slogan. Oftentimes these placeholders or slogans become uh, unfalsifiable generalizations. In fact, if you're really good at placeholders, you wanna make sure they're kind of unfalsifiable generalizations and abstractions. Um, and there's also the problem in our culture which is a very literate culture uh, and has been for a long time that we tend to abstract from any problem that fails to obtain the general agreement of people who are normally fit for social life. That is, if we bump into an issue that's not generating sufficient content, uh, 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 consent or agreement, we back off very quickly. And, you know, liberalism has a famous role in, in that uh, maneuver because liberals, especially in practical life, matters of law and so forth, uh, they give up interest uh, whenever general recognition appears to be exceedingly difficult. 
they just back off. It's sort of the Rawlsian move. If, if you're not going to get consent over something, push it to one side and uh, do the best that you can do. So to summarize for Simone, ideology, I call them placeholders or cliches, uh, it's pretty much the object of ideologies is not thought, but desire. Not explanation, but exhortation. Uh, perhaps the most persuasive of, of, of kind of ideology is one in which I would put it this way, history calls where there really is urgent timeliness to something. And when history calls, you say, yes, sir. You close your books. Or you can even burn your books, depending upon how urgent the call from Mr. History is. And, uh, and this is why he says at the very end of the first part, at page 66, But when the theory of natural law seems to be commonly accepted and works as a factor of agreement, there are good reasons to suspect that it is embodied in an ideology. Then the weight which brings about consensus is not that of objectivity, it's rather the sociological weight, which is at best an embarrassing ally of truth. So, he got up to page 66 to say that. But I, it, it, it was an important thing for him to say. And when he passes over into the next set of material, um, he, goes, he goes pretty slow. And, and, and you'll notice that he never gives a full dress rehearsal of the theory of natural law. But that's the kind of book it is. I think it's valuable precisely because of, of the way he goes about this. So he begins part two with basically a reflection on Thomas Aquinas's treatise on law, first question, four articles. Is law something pertaining to reason? Aliquid rationis, Article One. Spends a, a lot of time on that one, and also on Article uh, Two, which is uh, pertaining to the common good. Uh, so let's begin. Thomas says law is a rule and a measure of human acts not human activities like gallbladder secretions, right? Or digestion, but of human acts, that is uh, something that can be traced to the agency of someone. 
to moral agency, a human act, actus humanus. Okay. And uh, Simone says, well, what is this rule and measure? Well, there seems, there seems to be four aspects to that. And the four are chiefly an act of reason. It's a rule and measure of reason. Uh, it has as its end the common good, not merely private goods. Uh, third, it's made by competent authority. And fourth, it's actually made known, it's promulgated. I mean, you could have a rule and measure of a human act that satisfies the first three, but if you keep it a secret, it's not a law. In fact, if you try to enforce uh, the law that was kept secret, you would have something like the very opposite of a law, which would be a sheer act of force, an ex post facto law. No one knew they were bound by it when they acted. The, um, so, first of all, it imposes a law have to pass this test, it imposes moral rather than physical necessity. Uh, so I'm crossing the Irish Channel on a boat and I get terribly seasick and I fall onto the deck on my knees, vomiting, and I look at a sign it says, uh, vomiting is against the law. And even in my adult condition, I can summon the philosophical judgment that that makes no sense because uh, I have no freedom over that nausea and the vomiting. By the way, it's, it's an act of a human being in the sense that that's the kind of thing that happens to us given our uh, physical constitution. But you can't pass, laws don't have as their proper, immediately their proper object, uh, physical structures. They could secondarily, you could, you could have a law ordering tire manufacturers to have X amount of rubber in the tire. But the law is not given to the tire, right? It's given to a rational agent under the term of obligation. It governs the act of the manufacturer, not the tire. So, but had I looked up from the deck seasick, and I saw a sign, do not spit, I'd say, oh, that makes sense. If you, if we can agree that spitting is not the same thing as vomiting, I mean, spitting can't be anything other than a deliberate act, something traced to the agency of the person. So, uh, First clue here, why it's something pertaining to reason is that a command 
has as its proper object another agent. Not a physical structure, not immediately a physical structure. And if it has to do with the use of your body or anything else, it is first by the use of your mind. And that law always, and we don't have to say which law now, because we're dealing with law generally, criteria that would have to be met by anything that would be called a law, is it, it's from one mind to another. And I'll pick up that in more detail in a second. Uh, now, Aquinas held that command is chiefly an act of the intellect, not the will. There would be nothing for the will to will or to execute were there not first a ratio, an idea. Uh, Maybe this is why our founding fathers had the good sense to put the executive power after the legislative power, because were there no legislative power, there would be nothing for the executive to execute or to will. So Thomas's formula is that law is command itself is chiefly an act of the intellect, setting a proportion for an act in an end that presupposes the will. It presupposes that the lawmaker wills this, but it's chiefly an act of the intellect. Okay, evidence number one that law is chiefly in a mind. Of course, we can have about whose mind first, but it's in a mind. If, if, if law is not in a mind, it is not a law. It imposes not force, but obligation, a moral necessity. Uh, Herbert Hart, the great uh, legal theorist at Oxford, uh, great positivist, said the reason why it makes no sense to say that law is chiefly the threading of force conjoined to an imperative, something put in the imperative mood, is that someone goes into the 7-Eleven with a gun and says, stick them up. Well, give me all your money or else. Well, there, here's the threat of force in the imperative mood, but no one would consider this to be binding, a legitimate command. It may be something you have to comply with, but no one would think they, they have to obey it. Um, so from article one, Simone wants to put it out that wherever we find law, the first criterion, the first thing on our checklist is to verify whether it's something pertaining to reason. And I'm gonna skip a minute common good and just make this point. Um, the law first in, in every single case 
if there's law, no matter how complex the legal system, it is first in the mind of the lawgiver. It's, could we say, it's chiefly in the lawgiver's mind. And by participation or secondarily, it's in the mind of the recipient. So let me give you another example. This is not Simone's example, but I think, I think it works. If you go down to the street corner, that's governed by uh, lights, traffic lights. And you ask yourself, what's causing the cars to stop on red? And if you watch it long enough, what's going on there? You will be able to infer pretty reliably that the color red is not making the car stop. which is indirectly verified by the fact that at any given street corner, some cars don't stop on red. So red would be some sort of a sign. It's a sign, but it's, it's not just the certain concatenation of light waves we call red. Uh, nor is it some other physical force that's causing the cars to stop. So what's causing the cars to stop and then to go on green? Well, in say, the driver, the driver understands the sign, interprets it correctly, understands that it's not Mere advice, although in Italy they have 10 different meanings of rosso for red, so Italians have a much more complicated set of signs on this, but it, it is not just saying slow down or proceed carefully, or as they say in Texas, uh, uh, drive in a civil manner. No, it's, it's a command, it's saying stop, it's it, it is for everyone similarly situated. It's, it has that kind of universality to it. It's not just for people driving Buicks. Anyone similarly situated is under that command. Uh, and the driver being able to receive the idea, the command, interprets it correctly, uses his or her psychophysiological equipment to tap on the brakes and stop. So we can say the driver is causing the car to stop because the driver has adequately received the ratio under the note of obligation. But there's another mind that's causing those cars to stop. The legislator's mind is causing those cars to stop. And here you just have to stop and think philosophically about the situation. Uh, the legislator is not in the car and the legislator is not on the crossroads where the lights are, but the legislator's ratio, the law in the legislator's mind is made clear and we have a perfect case of what's called concurrent causality in which one mind 
is causing another mind to do something without any confusion between the two minds. So each mind has to contribute something to the single effect, the car stops, but which mind is the superior mind? Wait, it's the legislatures. And if it were not legislated, the cars would, would not be stopping very reliably. Take away the legislator's mind. It's, it's one of the beauties of law. It, it's a pure case of concurrent causality. Two lines of causality, in this case, two minds, producing a single effect without confusing either line of it. Okay. And someone goes through the red light and you end up in traffic court. And uh, the judge says, okay, what's the penalty for this? And pulls out the law book, opens it up, finds the penalty. But was law in the book? I think the answer I have to say no. I mean, not principally, it's not principally in the book. The book is another sign. And here's a case of law ruling and measuring through a mind, two minds in, in the case I've just given. First, it rules because all action is prospective. That's what it means to rule. You don't rule things past. You only rule things prospectively because human action is always prospective. But you can measure after the act. That's what judges do. Judges measure. They don't rule, they measure. That is, they take the completed action and they understand it. They, it's measured by the law. So, Law is, something, law is something pertaining to reason. It is not force. Rather, use of force is ruled by law. The police chase someone down the alley and start shooting, say, stop or we shoot. Right? The law is governing the policeman. It's not forcing the policeman, it's obligating the policeman under some term or another. Uh, now, as to authority, the world of commands is uh, a many splendored world. Not all commands are laws. All commands bind in one way or another, another agent. But not all of these bindings are, are law. Because uh, the world of commands is quite comfortable simply on an ad hoc basis, right? I tell my children to come in, take a shower, go to bed. I just given a command, but I did not issue a law. I may do it completely differently tomorrow without any interruption in, how to put it, the life of a command. Right? Uh, 
So let me give an example of that. You go to boot camp and you have to look at the Uniform Military Code of Justice. And you read in the Uniform Military Code of Justice, you must obey the legitimate commands of your sergeant. That's a law. It says nothing about what the commands are except the legitimate commands. But when the sergeant gives a command, it's not a law. If I'm making myself clear, the sergeant says, get into the helicopter right now. That's not a law, that's a command. The law is you must, everyone similarly situated, so it has that kind of universality to it, must obey the legitimate commands of their sovereign. And in fact, commands can be given by one private person to another private person, and, 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 as they usually are, actually. Um, so Simone points out that uh, the, what we mean by the rule of law is the governing of a multitude uh, that depends to some significant extent on laws rather than ad hoc commands. Which we call the rule of law. That doesn't do away with ad hoc commands. We'd be really stuck without them. Okay. So where there is a relatively well-developed and healthy legal system. Some things are determined by law and not just by ad hoc commands, which leads us to the criterion of common good. That uh, any kind of social order, two or more people enjoying common action for some end, whether it's domestic or whatever it might be, uh, needs an order of things. People have to command, people have to obey. But law, the term law is reserved for a multitude. And a multitude young and old, a multitude means anyone similarly situated, not just in my household, but in the next household and in the next household, uh, the most comprehensive community or what used to be called a perfect society, a society that contains within itself uh, in principle, all that's necessary for eudaimonia a multitude. Uh, if, if I were to receive a law just for uh, ordering my own kitchen, I, I would seriously doubt whether this is a law. Although I wouldn't be in doubt that it's a command. So a lot depends on the concept of a common good here, meaning chiefly, 
although I believe there's other instances of common good, the common good of the most comprehensive community. Uh, and Simone notes two counterfeits of common good. First counterfeit of common good is the belief that the common good is simply a set of external conditions. Uh, because common good is not just the ensemble of external conditions, uh, water systems, highways, traffic lights, ATM machines, and so forth. It is also the, uh, the social relations themselves, that is the union of the members. And so the, the plutonium grade understanding of a common good is the union of the members that enables the common action. Uh, common good is not merely an external instrumental good. It's also the very good of the, of the members enjoying a common action for a common end. Uh, and this is why in the older scholastic tradition and in the older Roman law even, the, you always want to look at what the bond is. Canon lawyers speak in, in matrimony of the bond. The bond is the intrinsic common good of the members themselves, their form of common action. Uh, for his part, Aquinas said in his commentary on Lombard sentences that consent in marriage cannot just be to certain results. Like if someone goes into matrimony and consents only to having children, they're not married. Consent has to be to the union itself. It's necessarily interpersonal and it necessarily is a consent to common action of one sort or another. So that spouses do not just consent or desire to procreate, they desire to procreate matrimonially. Traditionally, these two aspects of common good, the end that you want to achieve, the army wants victory in the battle, spouses want to procreate, et cetera, et cetera, is called the extrinsic common good, is what everyone's aiming at. The intrinsic common good, however, is the consent to an actual participation in the common action or the bond that holds that together. Where there is consent to a common end and some consent to common action, but where that is merely transient and temporary, you don't have the conditions yet of law. because you don't even have the beginning of really of a comprehensive community yet. 
that kind of thing could probably be held together by some ad hoc commands. So the three societies that are traditionally understood to be societies whose whole destiny and career depends upon law, matrimony, church, and polity. Uh, these are not transient societies. In fact, all of these societies have a common life, although they differ. Analogically, they differ. Right? Uh, and they are the subject of law. Uh, I see our canon lawyer, Father uh, Brian, is here. Uh, there are more canons on marriage than any other sacrament, by far. So the simplest kind of common good, the matrimonial society, is just riddled with law. I mean, there's so. Uh, and once upon a time, these three societies say, human beings are matrimonial, hyphen domestic animals, they're political animals and they're ecclesial animals. Uh, these, these societies were always bound by vows, not by mere contracts. Transient societies can be done by contract, okay. but by vows. And in the old regime, of course, you always got rings, right? The king received a ring when he made his vow to the people, to the kingdom, okay? Spouses get rings and religious get rings. It's society of vows. And when you get into the business of vows, you're right into the front door of laws. Okay. So, one other predicate of uh, common good, whether it's the matrimonial one or the political one or the uh, ecclesial one, matrimonial is the most important because it's, it, it bestrides both the political and the ecclesial, um, is that the intrinsic common good, the bond or the union is indivisible. It is not itself something allocatable or divisible, not in and of itself. There's only one way to have it, which is to participate it. So I'll give two examples of that and then we can move into whether what we think of as natural law satisfies these kind of conditions, these criteria. Um, uh, a couple go to a divorce court and petition the magistrate for a writ of divorce. And even in our very corrupt legal system today, the judge knows perfectly well that he can divide the, the goods a uh, husband gets the channel changer, wife gets the kitchen table, or what, however they divide this up. Those are divisible things, external divisible things, which had a certain function within that society. 
but they are always distributable. And any real society is always gonna pay a lot of attention to distributing common goods, which are always in Latin in the plural, right? Bona communia, they're, they're things that can be distributed. But the judge knows he can't distribute the marriage. He can't send one person away with 35% of it or another person with 65. It's simply not divisible in that way. You have it by way of participating in the union or you don't have it at all. There's simply no other way to have it. It's like a conversation. It's irreducibly social and indivisible in the sense there's only one way to have it, which is to do it. Second example, we speak of the rule of law and that's an intrinsic common good of a community is the rule of law. It is not the extrinsic common good. The extrinsic common good is justice. We're trying to achieve justice, but the way we're doing it together is something called the rule of law. Uh, it's indivisible. It's not distributable, strictly speaking. Uh, now, we take public monies to hire uh, public counsel on the government's dime for people who don't have enough money to hire a lawyer, especially in criminal cases. Right? But see, lawyers are distributable. If you have the money and you have enough lawyers, you can distribute them. And you could call those things like common good in some sense. But the rule of law is not distributable. I mean, if you try to actually send uh, one petitioner away in a court with 35% of the rule of law, you know that you've really goofed. Okay. So that criteria, Simone just really pumps that criteria of common good as, as, as a criterion for something being a law. Uh, and so one of the, I'll end with this. If, if I understand Simone properly, um, the notion of common good is corrupted the most usual corruption of the concept is to think of common good only as a set of external conditions, which is to think of the common good as a compositional set of conditions that are distributable. And the reason this is the most ordinary corruption of the concept of common good is that it's often the case that the distributable, divisible things are very urgent. And if you don't have some control in order to external distributable things, a society can fall apart, right? But they don't reach the core of concept of common good. In fact, we could deal with distributable things uh, without any union whatsoever. Hey, it's called contracts. Or a market, 
A market with contracts can distribute those things. Maybe. People try to make it do that anyway. And so, uh, so uh, question. How do you begin? Because we just begin with laws we ordinarily encounter it, which is in the mind of a lawgiver by participation and secondarily in the mind of the recipient uh, for the common good, for everyone who comes under who's, who's similarly situated, uh, promulgated, it has to be promulgated, made known. Uh, how do we begin verifying that nominal and dialectical understanding of law that we just gather from our ordinary experience and start sifting it out into these four criteria. How is that verified in the case of what is called natural law? Where does one begin? And it, it's a tricky question, by the way. It's not a trick question, but it's a tricky one because it's often the case that what is first in cognition uh, is not necessarily the first in the order of being. That's what complicates it. Notice that Aquinas himself gets to the issue of eternal law and natural law, which are first in the order of being through an exercise of examining what we take to be first in our order of learning, you know, which is people giving commands and laws, commands that are called laws even. And we derive criteria from that. So where do we begin? I put that on the table because I think that's basically his task there on out. <laughs> 